0: The Darklands podcast explores Pacific Northwest true crime and all that it entails. You are the expert in you. If at any time you find the content distressing, please use your judgment and either skip ahead a few minutes or move on to a different episode. On Memorial Day weekend, 2000, 25-year-old Josh Reddington stopped by his hometown of Salmon, Idaho to visit with his mom, Vera Poto. He was on his way from Montana, where he worked doing helicopter logging, to Boise, Idaho, where he was going to pick up some belongings. He was traveling with his friend and coworker, Michael Dauber. Michael was with Josh during this visit. They stayed for about an hour before taking off. It was the last time Vera would see her son alive. The mystery of what happened to Josh would drag on for 14 years and end with a devastating discovery It is a macabre story that involves secrets known by many, murders among friends, an unsettling family history, and the persistence of two families who refuse to let go. I'm Miss Abby B and this is Darklands Season One, Episode Three, The Hitman's Son. Salmon, Idaho is a tiny town of 3,000 in Lemhi County, which is nestled in the crook of the elbow of Idaho, where the panhandle bends to join the wider southern part of this state. It is surrounded by the central Idaho mountains, and the Salmon River flows through the center of town. Salmon's historical significance is as the area that the Lewis and Clark expedition entered after crossing the Continental Divide. The expedition was joined by Sacagawea, a Lemhi Shoshone woman who was the only female on the trek and who was instrumental in forging relationships between expedition members and indigenous communities along their route to the Pacific Ocean. I wanna just note that there are multiple spellings and pronunciations of Sacajawea, since her name was chronicled by white, non-indigenous people in multiple spellings and pronunciations, but I'm using the pronunciation favored by the Lemhi Shoshone. Salmon is a wonderland for outdoor enthusiasts which makes it a popular tourist destination. There's world-class whitewater rafting, cross-country skiing, hunting, fishing, thousands of trails for backcountry camping and exploration. And all of this makes it a great place to grow up if you're an outdoorsy person. But if you're not, there's frankly not a lot to do. I know this because I lived there for a few years, which is where I went to high school with Josh Reddington. Salmon High School is super small, about 300 students. I was a couple of years ahead of Josh in school, and while he dated one of my high school friends, he was actually a good friend of my younger brother, Seth. Josh was funny, friendly, a good-looking kid. He was a hugger, not in a creepy way, but more of in a, a you, man kind of way. He ran track and played football with my brother, where he was a running back who wore the number 32, like his idol, Marcus Allen. But he wasn't a jock, neither of them were, rather, They were both those really likable kind of people that fit in across the genres of high school cliques, able to hang with metalheads as easily as they could with the sports dudes. Even with the abundance of outdoor activities, there was really not a lot for teenagers to do in Salmon on weekend nights. There was one movie theater with a single screen where the movie changed once a week or less. There were no fast food franchises and nowhere open late to go have coffee and visit. So we spent our weekend nights cruising Main Street in this one stoplight town. We would drive the one mile stretch in a car full of friends, listening to music, honking and flashing our lights at each other as we made endless loops from the parking lot of the IGA down Main Street, turning at the country store, affectionately known as the cunt, to the dismay of many of the adults in town. Sometimes there would be a weekend kegger at a remote location like Panther Creek or Elk Bend Hot Springs, which would require driving treacherous unpaved roads that switched back into the woods. It is remarkable that we didn't lose more friends in rollovers and drunken crashes navigating the terrain back to town after a night of drinking in the middle of nowhere. This was pretty much the extent of our high school shenanigans, cruising, drinking, and maybe smoking pot. And Josh was no different. He was close with his single mom and she was much more lenient than Seth and my parents, so Seth stayed over there sometimes when the two of them hung out. My brother said that Vera was great, very kind, and her big role for Josh was not to do anything that would get him in trouble with the cops. And Josh did well. He excelled at sports and art, he had a good circle of friends, and he graduated from high school in 1993. At some point in the years after high school, Josh, like a lot of young people, lost his way for a while and spiraled into a pretty significant drug problem. He got involved with meth and heroin. By this time, my brother had lost touch with him. But Idaho is a small state in terms of gossip, and it doesn't matter if you're hundreds of miles away from where you grew up. You will always run into someone you went to high school with who knows the dirt. And since there are only a couple of cities like Boise, Twin Falls, and Pocatello, there is a high likelihood that even when you have moved to the quote-unquote big city, you will eventually cross paths with your old classmates. This happened twice with my brother and Josh in the seven years after they left school. Once, Josh showed up on his doorstep in Boise. My brother had no idea how he even found out where he lived. They caught up for a while, but this was when Josh was deeply ensconced in his substance abuse, and Seth didn't really want to pursue reconnecting. About a year before he vanished, Josh crossed paths with my brother again. This time they bumped into each other at a gas station in Boise. Suss said that Josh had put on about 40 pounds since he last saw him. They hugged and did the quick catching up thing. Josh told him that he'd stopped using meth and heroin, and that had led to him putting on some weight. They parted ways with that common promise that you make when you run into an old friend that you remember fondly, but have gone in different directions from. We'll keep in touch. And the next time my brother would hear about Josh would be when the news that he was missing began to spread. No one was prouder of Josh turning his life around than his mom, Vera. They had always been close, and they frequently talked on the phone, and he always stopped in to visit on his way through Salmon from his logging job in Polson, Montana, on his way to southern Idaho. Josh had begun talking about the possibility of enrolling in college in the near future, and Vera was looking forward to seeing where this new chapter in his life would take him. So she became concerned after that Memorial Day weekend in 2000, when she didn't hear from him for a while after their visit, and even more worried when she found out that he had not returned to his job in Polson. At this point, she contacted Josh's friend, Michael Dauber, to find out where her son was. Mike told her that after they had left her house that Memorial Day, he and Josh had gotten into a fight on their way to Boise, and Mike decided he wouldn't be taking Josh any farther, so he kicked him out of the car. Mike said that the last he saw of Josh was him walking into a bar after their argument. Vera was instantly suspicious, but what could she do? Josh was an adult, and even though there was a missing persons report filed and police did follow up on it, Mike stuck to his story about arguing with Josh and the men going their separate ways. Days turned into weeks, weeks into months, and months into years. In that time, Vera began to believe that Mike had probably killed her son. It was the only thing that would explain Josh not getting in touch with her. But again, there was no proof, no leads, no one was coming forward to contradict Mike's story. So for 14 long years, Vera had to sit with the mystery of what happened to her son and hope that one day he would be found so that she could at least bring him home and bury him. And Michael Dauber? Mike went on to live his life seemingly without a care. He studied nursing, worked in logging, he served in the military in Iraq, where he was injured in 2004, first in a Humvee accident, and again when his convoy was hit by an IED. He returned to Idaho after his military service and lived in a remote cabin in Idaho City, a small town of about 500, which is 40 miles outside of Boise. There, he was roommates with his childhood friend, Stephen Kalagorakos, who he would go on to murder, dismember, and bury in the woods in yet another case that would remain a mystery for six years before being resolved. Michael Dauber and Stephen Kalagorakos grew up together in Chicago, where they became friends as kids. Stephen's sister, Maria, would state that at Michael's trial that the two were so close that the family trusted him and embraced him as a friend. Stephen and Michael moved to Idaho together in 1994 for reasons that I wasn't able to discern. They were roommates there for six years when Stephen returned to Chicago in 2000. Stephen would move back to Idaho where he'd once again become Michael's roommate in the remote Idaho city cabin in 2007. This was after Michael had returned from his stint in the military. Shortly after returning to Idaho for the second time, 42-year-old Stephen disappeared and a missing persons report was filed in January of 2008 when his family hadn't heard from him for a while. Initially, police did not believe foul play was involved in Stephen's disappearance. After all, he was an adult and not obligated to contact his family no matter how close they were. This began a six-year period of confusion and grief for the Caligaracos family. In a 2008 interview with KBOI 2 News, Maria stated that the family didn't know what to believe about his disappearance and that they had a ton of different scenarios playing out in their minds. Over the next six years, Maria would tenaciously pursue answers in her brother's disappearance, hounding the police to find out what happened to him. And while what happened to Steve was a mystery to his family and to law enforcement, there were a lot of people that actually knew the truth. You see, Michael Dauber was a braggart who liked to instill fear in people. He was also involved in dealing drugs. And it is in this convergence that Michael would brag to at least three individuals that he was in a drug deal with about the fact that he had shot Stephen in December of 2007. In case that didn't intimidate them enough, he went into gruesome detail about what he did after shooting Stephen. Michael explicitly told them about how after Stephen was dead, he had taken an axe and bone saw and chopped up his body, placing body parts in plastic bags, which he then placed in a rucksack and buried in the woods. He later moved the body with the help of a friend into the desert outside of Idaho City. It is unclear how long the people that knew about Stephen's grisly murder held on to their secrets and how many others they may have told. At some point, someone with this information must have tipped off the police because they began investigating Stephen's disappearance in earnest. It was also during this time that a member of the Lemhi County Sheriff's Office attended a law enforcement training from the FBI regarding science and cold cases, which prompted him to elicit the FBI's help in investigating Josh Reddington's disappearance. The FBI joined forces with the Idaho State Police and local law enforcement in Salmon, Boise, and Idaho City and it was in this joint investigation that they would get their big break in Stephen's case. In early 2014, law enforcement were able to locate the friend that helped Michael Dauber rebury Stephen's body after he had been dug up from his original site of interment. According to Boise County Prosecutor Ross Pittman, the events surrounding Stephen's death went something like this. Around December 27, 2008, Michael Dauber shot Stephen in the head while they were out in the woods. It is unknown why he murdered his old friend. Michael then dismembered Stephen and put his body parts in a bag, which he buried under a snowbank. Then, in the spring, after the snow began to melt, Dauber decided that he better move the body, so he enlisted the help of a friend from his Army days. It is this friend that became an informant and led law enforcement to Stephen's body. Pittman says that at first the Army friend was not aware that the rucksack he was helping move and bury in the woods contained human remains, until at some point he was able to look in the bag, which is when he saw a torso and other body parts. Even though the friend, who has remained unnamed in court proceedings throughout this case, wanted no part of what was happening after he figured things out, he was stuck. He was in the woods with Michael, who was armed and not taking no for an answer. So the friend did as he was told, and stayed silent about it until six years later, when he would eventually lead law enforcement to Stephen's remains. And on Tuesday, March 11, 2014, Michael Dauber would be arrested for the murder of Stephen Caligaracos and placed in the Ada County Jail while he awaited trial. While Michael Dauber sat in jail awaiting trial for murdering his childhood friend, a rather serendipitous thing happened, at least from the perspective of law enforcement. Michael's former roommate, Tom Tiffany, was arrested for a DUI. Tiffany lived with Dauber in the Idaho City cabin, where he exchanged doing chores around the property in lieu of paying rent. It is unclear whether Tom Tiffany started talking to the police because he was trying to skate on his DUI charge, or if law enforcement knew his connection to Dauber and exerted some pressure on him for information, or some combination of the two. Regardless of the reason, after his DUI bust, Tom Tiffany started talking. And the story he had to tell, and the story he had to tell was shocking and horrific. According to Tom, he was living with Dauber in May 2000 when Dauber came into his room and woke him from a dead sleep. He led Tom into the living room, where there, on the floor of the cabin, was the body of twenty five year old Josh Reddington, dead from a bullet to the head. Dauber asked Tom to help him move Josh's body to the crawl space under the cabin, but Tom refused and went back to his room. While he was in his room trying to go back to sleep, he said that he could hear the sounds of an electric saw and of bones cracking and splintering downstairs. I'm going to pause here for a second to let the hideousness of that sink in. He could hear bones being sawn through, and he stayed in his room. When police asked why he didn't immediately flee the scene when he discovered what was going on, Tom responded that he didn't run because he was barefoot. This may seem like a ridiculous excuse, but shock and trauma do weird things to a person's ability to use their logical brain. So I'll give Tom Tiffany a pass on his immediate response. What is inexcusable, however, is that Tiffany sat on this information for 14 long years while Vera and the police searched for answers to Josh's disappearance. He stayed silent while Michael was far away in Iraq where he didn't pose a threat to Tiffany's safety and well-being. He let Josh's family and friends suffer until he finally broke, and only when he himself had a deal for immunity for his silence did he lead authorities to what was left of Josh's remains. And in the period that Tom Tiffany kept this secret, Michael Dauber would go on to murder Stephen Kaligorakos. Now there are two men, two friends, shot in the head and dismembered at the hands of Michael Dauber. So who is this guy that solves fights with his friends in such a vicious and vile manner? Well, that's where this case becomes even more bizarre. If you'll remember, Michael Dauber was from Chicago, which is where he and Steven met and became friends. Dauber was also a military veteran, injured in Iraq. He studied nursing. He was the father of two adult children. But it is Michael's own father that brings a twist to this case, because Michael's father was a man named William, or Billy Dauber and Billy Dauber was a hitman for the notorious Chicago crime syndicate known as The Outfit. (music) The Outfit is old-school Italian-American-style mafia a la The Godfather, and I say is because The Outfit is still an active force. The Outfit was founded in 1910 by Vincenzo Colosimo, AKA Big Jim Colosimo, AKA Diamond Jim. Big Jim built his criminal empire in Chicago using petty crimes like gambling and prostitution and running brothels, and then parlayed this into a powerful mafia family that ran over 100 brothels, and more importantly, that was able to organize the disjointed criminal enterprises operating in Chicago into one, well, outfit. In 1909, while building his empire, Big Jim imported help from New York when he brought in Johnny the Fox Rio to serve as an enforcer for the outfit. The outfit was being shaken down by another crime organization known as the Black Hand, and Torrio was enlisted to shut down this extortion, which he did. In 1919, Johnny the Fox sent to New York for one of his colleagues that was to go on and become his protege. The person that he sent for was Al Capone. In 1920, prohibition became the law. Johnny Torrio urged Big Jim to expand his enterprise into the lucrative area of bootlegging, but it wasn't something that Big Jim wanted to pursue. So in May 1920, Torrio told Big Jim that one of their shipments of some other product had arrived at a restaurant and Big Jim went to check it out. While he waited, he was ambushed and shot to death. It was widely believed that Big Jim was killed by Frankie Yale, a Brooklyn-based crime boss and colleague of Johnny the Fox, and that he acted at the behest of Torrio and Capone. However, Frankie Yell was never charged, and the outfit went on to be run by Toreo before being passed on to Al Capone. This little primer on the outfit is to emphasize that the world that Michael Dauber's father inhabited was no joke, and apparently neither was Billy Dauber. In a 2004 article in the Chicago Tribune by John Cass, Billy Dauber is referred to as a psychopath and was described as being so callous that he would put his arm around his victims in a sideways hug and smile at them while he pulled the trigger, still smiling while holding up the dead body. Billy Dauber is believed to be responsible for at least 20 unsolved murders between the years of 1969 and 1980. These are all years when Michael was a child. During the late 1970s, Billy Dauber's relationship with his employer was breaking up. He was facing several indictments and had already been convicted of wire fraud and interstate transportation of a vehicle used in the commission of a murder. He was disgruntled, feeling like he wasn't getting the respect he deserved from the outfit. He wanted more power and control in the rackets he ran. On top of this, his wife, Charlotte, did not suffer these perceived slights silently. In the Cass article, the author states that, quote, Charlotte's sin was that when he told her his business, she listened, and then she mouthed off in a bar about his troubles, end quote. This culminated in rumors that the discontented Billy Dauber was working as an informant with the feds in order to get out of his indictments. And on July 2nd, 1980, as Billy and Charlotte were returning home after a hearing on gun charges in the Chicago courts, The vehicle they were in was subject to a hail of gunfire, causing Billy to swerve off the road into an apple tree, where the car was subsequently set ablaze. Billy and Charlotte's bodies were discovered in the car by two farmers. The case went cold, although eventually an associate of the outfit, Jerry Scarpelli, would confess to the crime. Michael Dauber was just 12 years old when his parents were executed. There are obvious parallels to be drawn between the reported icy way in which Billy Dauber executed countless people and the way in which his son just as coldly dispatched his quote-unquote friends. But I'm not about to get into a like father, like son, nature versus nurture discourse, because frankly, I think it's a false dichotomy. And at the end of the day, debates like nature v. nurture don't change the fact that the families of Josh Reddington and Stephen Caligaracos have to live with the knowledge that that they were murdered by a so-called friend and then butchered and tossed away like so much garbage. In 2014, following up on the information from Michael's roommate, Tom Tiffany, Idaho State Police excavated the crawl space area at the Idaho City cabin. There, they found a bone fragment which would later be determined to have come from a human hip. That was all they were able to find, and they had to send it off for DNA testing to confirm their suspicions that this was all that remained of Josh Reddington. This discovery, while having the potential to provide much long-for answers, was also soul-crushing for Vera Poto, who at the very least just wanted to bring home Josh's body for burial. After several weeks of waiting, forensics were able to use DNA from one of Josh's baby teeth to confirm that the tiny bone fragment barely the size of a human toe, was over 5 trillion times more likely to belong to Josh than anyone else on this planet. In December 2014, while Mike Dauber was in jail awaiting the trial for the murder of Stephen Caligaracos, he was arrested and charged in the 14-year-old murder of Josh Reddington. Dauber would not go to trial for the murders of Josh and Stephen. Instead, in 2016, Dauber would strike a deal with prosecutors, taking an Alford plea in exchange for two life sentences to be served concurrently with the possibility of parole in 17 years. An Alford plea is this weird legal maneuver where a defendant says, look, I'm not saying that I did the thing, but it looks like prosecutors would probably convict me of the thing with the evidence that they have, so I'm just going to plead guilty. But really, I didn't do it. It's usually a declaration someone makes as part of a plea bargain when they are worried that they would likely be convicted of a greater crime. At his sentencing, Dauber's attorney brought up his childhood, but also went on to say that Michael was not aware that his father was a mafia hitman, nor did he know about the violent circumstances surrounding his parents' deaths. She also pointed to Dauber's military service and his combat injuries. She stated that the Humvee accident he was involved in while serving in Iraq had caused Dauber to be knocked unconscious for over six hours. Then shortly after that, the IED that struck his convoy knocked him unconscious again. And it was around this time that Dauber began suffering memory lapses, headaches, and began stuttering. He would later be diagnosed with a traumatic brain injury. Prosecutors were quick to point out that these injuries took place after Dauber had murdered Josh. They further stated that Dauber's cruelty continued as he tried to blame both Josh and Stephen for their own murders by making allegations of serious, unnamed crimes, claims that were never substantiated, and asserting that their murders were an act Dauber undertook to eradicate evil. As if this wasn't enough, Dauber added insult to injury for Vera Poto. Vera's one desire after all of this was to bring home Josh's body for burial. Prosecutors offered to sweeten Dauber's plea deal, allowing him to be eligible for parole after 15 years instead of 17 years if he would simply provide the location where Josh was ultimately buried. Dauber refused, leaving Josh's family only the toe-sized hip bone fragment that the police were able to find. This was, of course, a brutal blow for Vera and Josh's friends, but there was nothing they could do. Dauber's sentencing revealed even more of his heartlessness as he sat through excruciating victim statements from both Stephen and Josh's families. Mike thought they expressionless as a stricken Stella Kalagorakos, Stephen's mom, implored him to explain why she would do this to his son. Stephen's sister reminded the court that the family had trusted Michael and considered him a friend, and in exchange for that trust, Dauber robbed her of a brother and her children of their uncle. Virapoto was so broken that she couldn't even make it through her statement. After struggling to say that she was plagued by imagining the sounds of Josh's bones being sawn through as he, quote, got sawed up and chopped up like a deer, end quote, she began hyperventilating and a proxy was allowed to finish reading her victim's impact statement. When asked if he had anything to say for himself, Dauber remained stoic and made no apologies or admissions. Rather, he thanked the people that had been there for his children and his wife, and then he sat back down. Stella Kalagorakos urged the judge to hand down a tougher sentence that would never allow Dauber to get out of prison. She said that if Dauber was to get out, she was sure that he would kill again, leaving other families to wonder for years what happened to their loved ones. The judge, however, stuck to the terms of the plea agreement, allowing both life sentences to be served concurrently. Michael Dauber is eligible for parole in 2031. The judge did acknowledge that, quote, I am painfully aware that there is no sentence to fix this, nothing to bring back those the victims have lost, end quote. Michael Dauber is currently serving a sentence in the Idaho State Correctional Institute in Boise, Idaho. And while it may seem unfair that he is eligible for parole after 17 years, there's a slim chance that he may face other charges that would keep him locked up for longer. Josh and Stephen are not Daughter's only suspected victims. In July 2011, a man burst through the doors of a hair salon on Main Street in Idaho City, frantically shouting that there was a man on the street that wasn't breathing. He then fled the scene. When the staff and customers of the salon ran out onto the street, they found the body of 42-year-old David Fish Fishback laying on the porch of the town's Masonic Lodge, with his legs dangling off the edge. Fish was deceased and there was water around him, as if someone had splashed water on his face to rouse him. The coroner would later determine that Fish had died of a heroin overdose. He had a history of struggling with substance abuse. However, the coroner listed his cause of death as undetermined, meaning it wasn't clear if it was accidental, intentional, or something else. Fish's family and friends had a strong suspicion that his death was not all that it seemed. According to them, Fish and Michael Dauber were very good friends. For years, they were inseparable. Fishback's daughter, Laura, stated that the two of them, quote, did everything for each other. They were just best friends. My dad never left his side, and Mike never left his side. End quote. But something had happened that soured their relationship. In the year running up to his death, Fish had begun putting distance between himself and Dauber, and even refused to take Dauber's calls. When his daughter asked him about it, Fish allegedly told her that Mike was doing things he should not be, but did not elaborate. He did, however, divulge more of what was troubling him to a close friend, Dan Kano. According to Dan, a few months before his death, Fish had returned to Idaho City after staying in Montana for a while. When he got back, he told Kano that Michael Dauber had asked him to help bury the body of Stephen Kallagorakos, which you'll remember Dauber had dug up from its original location to move to a more hidden spot. Dan Kano said he told Fish that he didn't want to hear any more about it and left it at that. Kano did not report this story to the police that were investigating Stephen's disappearance, however. He said that he had heard that the FBI and police were already looking at Dauber as a person of interest in Stephen's disappearance, and that because at that point, since they were checking into Dauber pretty hard, he didn't think that any of the information he had would be beneficial. This was three years before Stephen's body was found. Three more years, in the Caligaracos' family's desperate search for answers. In addition to the potential dirt that Fish had on Dauber, it was also believed that the man who had busted into the beauty salon to announce that there was someone not breathing on the street was none other than Michael Dauber. Dauber had been in the salon earlier in the day trying to sell meat, and he had left a business card. While the salon staff weren't positive, they were pretty certain that the man who left his card was the same person that had told them about Fishback. I should note that at this time, there were rumors swirling around Idaho City about a ring of people selling both meat and drugs. In 2016, at the time of Dauber's sentencing, Fishback's daughter claimed that the FBI was investigating his death, and it was also at this time that the Idaho Statesman newspaper reached out to the FBI's regional office in Salt Lake City, but were not able to get a statement, so it is unclear what the status of their investigation is, or if there even is an investigation. I usually prefer to end my cases with something about the lives of the victims to recenter the facts of what occurred around their humanity, around what we have lost by not having them in this world anymore. It pains me that there is precious little information out there about Josh and Stephen's lives that I can present to you because I don't want the way in which they were killed to overshadow the lives that they had. Stephen remains a virtual enigma to me. I can tell you that he was fiercely loved by his sister, who never gave up, and who was instrumental in pressuring law enforcement to not let his case go, and that is really about the extent of what I could find. The most information out there is about David Fishback, who, while not a confirmed victim of Michael Dauber, certainly was victimized by the knowledge he is alleged to have had. I can tell you that Fish was a father that though he struggled with substance abuse, he was well known and well loved in the town he lived in. He apparently liked to sing and based on the comments on his obituary, he was very fond of Merle Haggard's song, Silver Wings. One of the individuals that found his body said that while she didn't know his name, she recognized him from around town and that he was an incredibly nice man that always had a friendly greeting for everyone. I can also tell you that his family is just as tenacious as Maria Caligaracos. They are also on a quest to find out the truth about the death of their loved one. The only reason I have more information about Josh Reddington than what was in the media is because of his relationship with my brother and the few memories I have of him when we went to high school together. I remember that he was a fun guy. My brother remembers him insisting on always wearing the number 32 on his jerseys so that he could have the same number as Marcus Allen. Seth also remembers unnamed high school adventures that he didn't provide details about. But as we talked about Josh last week over video chat, while Seth was looking through his old yearbook, he came across a picture of them with their arms around each other. And his eyes went to that far away place they do when you're remembering something good. And he said, yeah, we had some good times. I also know that Josh was fighting the good fight, that he was working to overcome years of using hard drugs, that he had told his mom he was considering going to college. He was thinking of a different life for himself. And frankly, Even if none of this was true, even if he was still struggling with all of those demons, it doesn't matter, because no one deserves his fate and the subsequent indignity that his body was subject to. No one. And certainly, his mom Vera does not deserve to not have the body of her son to bury. In the days after it was confirmed that the remains from the Idaho City cabin were in fact Josh's, My brother and a few of Josh's other high school friends that had migrated to Boise got together at a local bar for an impromptu session to share memories and stories about Josh. And even though she wasn't able to bury her son as she would have liked to, Vera did get some semblance of closure with the discovery of his remains. In August 2017, Vera and her husband Dick held a celebration of life for Josh for themselves and his friends. She was also able to finally write an official obituary for him, wherein she was able to thank the Lemhi County Sheriff's Office for renewing their push to solve Joshua's disappearance, the FBI, and to also express gratitude to Maria Kalagorakos for her persistence, which allowed for the family to finally have some peace in their hearts. Thank you for listening to Season 1, Episode 3 of Darklands. I'd like to give a special thanks to my brother Micah for suggesting that I look into Josh's case, and to my brother Seth for being willing to share his memories. Darklands is a bi-weekly podcast available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, and Podbean. A starred review would be greatly appreciated. Darklands is a free-to-pants production. Please feel free to contact me with feedback or story ideas about Pacific Northwest true crime at darklandspodcast at gmail.com. All sources are available on our website, darklandspodcast.podbean.com.